pretty much people just want purpose in life. And I think Innocence Project gives, it's given me purpose for the last seven years and people want to help. They hear our clients' stories. We're a gold mine of story, unfortunately. And, you know, my biggest goal, I, I'll die happy when Barry and Peter uh, are awarded the, the Medal of Freedom from the from our country. I think that's my, you know, I'm like, Valerie, how do we get this done? You know, apparently it's some process, but I think what they've done, and of course they, they have a team behind them, but they started this is really extraordinary. And I'm honored to be uh, on Barry's team and to uh, have had this privilege of working for this organization. This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about Born in June, Raised in April. Hi, my name is April Dinwiddie, and I host a podcast called Born in June, Raised in April, What Adoption Can Teach the World. As a transracially adopted person, I share insights and conversations with other folks in the community, and we deconstruct identity, relationships, and facing and embracing differences of race, culture, and class. Hi, listeners. Thanks for joining. And today's conversation centers on The Innocence Project, as well as my two guests, Alicia Cepeda-Mall and Barry Sheck. Founded in 1992 by Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld at the Benjamin Cordoso School of Law at Yeshiva University, The Innocence Project works to free the innocent, prevent wrongful convictions, and create fair, compassionate, and equitable systems of justice for everyone. Their work is guided by science and grounded in anti-racism. Alicia Cepeda-Mall is the Innocence Project's first digital engagement director. Since 2015, she led the organization in exponential audience growth, revenue, and advocacy, including campaigns that helped stop the execution of Purvis Payne and Rodney Reed. Prior to this, Alicia worked in digital for President Obama's 2012 re-election campaign, as well as MSNBC. Barry Check is a co-founder and director of the Innocence Project, as well as a professor of Benjamin Cardoso School of Law, Yeshiva University. He's a recipient of the National Trial Lawyers Lifetime Achievement Award, and he's also received the New York State Bar Association's gold medal. Let's get to the conversation where Alicia is telling us more about her path and the Innocence Project. Alicia, what brought you to the Innocence Project and what was your background with digital strategy? I got into digital as an undergraduate at Brown University. I I wanted to build, I, I was already a community builder on campus and I knew I wanted to take the next level and bring it to the World Wide Web. I launched maingreen.tv to showcase the, the baddest kids on campus, you know, entrepreneurs and artists, such as Jamila Woods, who has, you know, gone on to make music with Chance the Rapper. Um, and and be a world-renowned poet. I knew I had to do that to have a career in digital. And the, my first job out of college was working for President Obama, his 2012 re-election campaign. And that was just a boot camp crash course in digital organizing um, that I continue to use as a framework for what I do every day. Then MSNBC.com didn't have a website. And they're like, we want to use the Obama model. They hired a few of us did that, got in the weeds. I never thought I'd be running social media for anyone, let alone a news outlet. So we went from one social media editor to like five. We were just shifts on shift, just scheduling like crazy because that was where the market went. And I was just like, if you can do breaking news for a news outlet, again, a boot camp and just high pressure intensity and a lot of frequency in content, analytics, understanding measurements and engagement. And then I said, damn it, I know how to do this. And I want to do this for something I care about. As a black woman in America, 
the mass incarceration situation is really you know, upsetting to me. At Brown, I took a course on the economics of mass incarceration with Glenn Lowry. My final was on pregnant women and how they give birth while shackled. Um, so that and just being, you know, living in the in the shoes that I walk in, it was like, I have to help and I, I they deserve the best. So um, I got a, a note about an online communications manager for this project called the Innocence Project. They were kind of familiar and certainly their reputation precedes them um, and is super well-known and respected before I, you know, I was even a, a blip in the world. Um, I applied uh, and and I got the opportunity um, and it's just been a match made in heaven to bring the level of excellence that I was taught um, to this project. Yeah. So Barry, um, were you aware that the Innocence Project was missing this magic piece to the puzzle? Well, we all were. Absolutely. I mean, you look at nonprofits in our space and it's very hard to get the kind of digital engagement, uh, where you keep people coming, uh, online, uh, they get appropriate information, but they get engaged. They actually go to their state legislatures they go to their city councils. They begin to support particular clients and causes. And that's difficult to do. Um, and uh, we thought at the Innocence Project that we had a great way to do it because, you know, you can engage people in the struggle to save an innocent person uh, or to prevent somebody from being executed when there is substantial doubt that they are guilty or they certainly should be executed. And uh, we knew over time, you know, when we got engaged in campaigns like the, the, the campaign to save Troy Davis mm -hmm. or Gary Graham over the years, that these were very effective uh, uh, in terms of getting our message out. But uh, operationalizing it was completely different and we needed an Alicia. When I look at both of you, even though you have different roles, different hats you wear at the Innocence Project, you both keep it focused on what I'll say the human or, you know, in medicine, we say patient-centered care, human-centered care. Alicia, in your case, you've been focused on people-centered storytelling. And Barry, in your case, you know, when you talk about your cases, when you give lectures, you're on podcasts, you're always sure to talk about the person, the human who's been your focus. So I'm wondering if you can each take a question, Alicia, you first, uh, about the importance and why it is ultimately about the human, the human-centered story, and Barry, why it is for you ultimately the person that you are dealing with in terms of, you know, on death row or falsely accused. Yeah, well, first of all, I think my role as the digital engagement director for the Innocence Project is to tell, I have the great pleasure um, to tell the stories of our clients to the, to the world and to tell the organization's stories. I was quickly humbled when I got to the Innocence Project. Maddie DeLone, the former executive director, very focused on people. She spent uh, her career at Rikers Island, um, in Rikers Island, supporting um, uh, folks behind bars. And I remember I was building them a new website and um, she made sure to drill into our team. This is about our clients. They come first. So our website is a white canvas so that the people 
come first. And so that is my, you know, a tenant of the digital team is people um, over everything and we serve them. Nothing, everything is to help them, which is why we work closely with the attorneys to make sure nothing would, that my team would ever do would do nothing but support um, and help them. So, you know, focusing on the humanity of our clients, well, focusing on our clients, they are really the lifeblood of what we do um, and, and keeps me grounded. Years ago, when Barack Obama was running for president, I went to a fundraiser in New York, and I came forward and I shook his hand. And I said, "You know, my name is Barry Sheck. I'm, you know, very, I'm thrilled <laughs> that you're running and this is happening." He says, "I remember you. You testified at that hearing. That was totally nuts, right?" So, you know, uh, the innocence work has always had, uh, 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 you know, a a, a footprint, right? Uh, We've always punched above our weight because the nature of uh, what we're doing just appeals to people in a very fundamental way. Uh, and so thank God we have Alicia here to spread that throughout the digital universe. I want to draw some connections between what I do, emergency medicine, and the work that you two are doing with the Innocence Project. So in emergency medicine, we take all comers, often people without insurance, people who perhaps other parts of society, communities have given up on. Also, as a healthcare worker, I'm constantly exposed to trauma. And I'm acutely aware of reading the stories and hearing the testimonies, you standing up in court and seeing and hearing and understanding how people's lives have been taken from them. The extent to which you're aware of being traumatized, being exposed to trauma, and what you do to deal with that. Alicia, why don't you take it first, then Barry? Yeah, I think as a comms person, digital person, I don't think I'm on the front lines of the trauma that Barry, the paralegals, and the legal team um, directly looking at files and are exposed to. So I have a great level of respect for them in that regard. Um, I think sometimes, um, you know, when you have a high profile case, accusations of rape and murder, the comments toward your clients can, you know, you take it personally, you're on the defense side, you're representing your client. So I think in that regard, um, you know, we have millions of people hurling, uh, for the most part, good, you know, good things, because, you know, they've done an incredible job of, of, of using innocence to, to compel people that they got the wrong person. But there's still tricky cases where um, people take jabs. And so I think being the defense of the organization to millions of people um, is, is quite a, a great responsibility. But you're reading these stories, you're hearing it, like I've watched your Webby Award winning video, and it's moving emotionally each and every time there's a trauma that you are yeah I I, I think uh, I'm I'm really driven by doing right by our clients and they're the ones who don't have the freedoms that I do they're the ones whose children you know their children don't have parents um, who might come from you know decades of, of poverty and lack of access to education so in this case I I um, I don't victimize myself at all, and I feel like I'm in service to them. And their, it's their strength that I have no reason to complain. Um, but I, you know, I really am interested in the direct exposure to someone like Barry, who's reading the the, the details and looking at the, the the evidence and 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 really how he desensitizes himself to this. 
Well, you can't desensitize yourself because if uh, you walk into a prison, I'm sure you realize this recently, you walk into a prison and you don't smell <laughs> what's going on there, then you might as well just quit. Uh, but, you know, uh, uh, we, our new executive director, Christina Swarns, who knew she's been there, what, four years now, uh, you know, came from Legal Defense Fund, was a public defender, uh, has put an emphasis uh, again, on trying to deal with secondary trauma for all the people that work in the organization. Uh, particularly, we have a, an excellent staff that deals with uh, uh, just trying to help our clients um, and others within the network, but our clients. Uh, it's, it's, the, it's been very frustrating because when we first started, we wanted to get a nationwide uh, <clears throat> entity right, that would take care of the wrongly convicted um, and, uh, you know, try to deal with their needs. And it turned out that, you know, that's not something that foundations were willing to support because it was too atomized. You know, you have a few in one state and a few here. It wasn't a general program that they would commit huge amounts to. But as the network has grown and as the exonerations have continued, and you should look at the registry of exonerations, you'll see we're, you know, over 3,000 at this point. Um, there's a tremendous need uh, to deal with it. And, you know, the leaders of this really are our clients. The exonerees themselves uh, have extraordinary resilience. Uh, because the one thing you learn after a while is that uh, if you're wrongly convicted and you're put in prison for a crime you didn't commit, naturally, you're going to be very angry, right? But the people that are just engulfed in rage all the time, they don't survive, right? And so each of the clients in their own way has some kind of spiritual transcendence. And I'm not saying necessarily organized religion, but some kind of spiritual transcendence. That's why everybody is always amazed. Oh, you know, so-and-so got out and they're not really angry. Well, that's not true. <laughs> they have all these resentments. They want to change everything. But they had to have this kind of transcendence in order to survive. Uh, and by the way, the families, every time you put an innocent person in jail, you're putting the whole family in jail. And it, uh, it, it really is a circle of pain that uh, uh, radiates out over generations. So it's a very hard problem. And, and we do have, uh, uh, and I'm sure it's true in your work, you know, innocence, uh, people in the innocence movement all across the country. Again, 71 organizations in the United States, 13 abroad. They have to deal with this. And so now, the, uh, you know, our, our network and the Innocence Project itself, and I think Christine has actually done a lot with this, is trying to deal with the trauma, uh, the secondary trauma of, of people in the organizations and how you deal with it, because it's, uh, it's not easy. Alicia, you've actually said that, you know, the mass incarceration of black men has been one of your motivators. What do you see in terms of racism and what has surprised you? Well, I think uh, if you look at who's been exonerated, uh, black folks, we represent like two thirds of the exonerees. Um, we're more likely to, to be wrongly convicted. The stats on people um, on death row are, are frightening. Um, there's also cases of, of mass convictions based on drug crimes that are just not true. So it, it, it's inescapable and it's, um, it's just a business that, you know, as phenomenal as the Innocence Project is, we're not enough. 
and we need, you know, we have the network, but we're just up against a machine that um, is financially incentivized to lock up um, poor people. Um, so it's, I was in, you know, when we were at down in New Orleans for, uh, um, our client's case, Daryl Henry and I, I don't go into court often, but we went in and they're just doing the, the, they're, they're having case after case in there. And who's, who's the defendant? And it was a black judge. And she's like, why are you here again to a, not our client to a different, to a different, um, uh, defendant why are you back and why are you wearing a jumpsuit? And it was just, so I'm seeing this happening. Um, and it's all black guys, young black guys and black women too. Um, women are, are, are increasing in terms of um, uh, incarceration. And then I go outside and this woman is running with flip-flops with a baby in her hand and she's dragging her child across the street. And I'm like, what is going, why is she doing that? Her car is getting towed because she's in there for a loved one her car gets towed, doesn't doesn't have a cell phone. I'm just like, this is the problem right here, um, and, and that that just that just hurts. And and then I think to add to your question about uh, trauma, I think what really upsets me the most is seeing the health impact that being in prison has on anyone, but the people we work with, our clients, and how a couple years after they come out. They've had years of lack of, of, of appropriate treatment and they don't live full lives. Um, and that to me is the physical toll that mass incarceration, wrongful conviction physically takes on our loved ones um, is, is really hard to bear. How do, we, how do we make up for decades of, of not treating cancers, not having the right medicine, eating horrible food? Um, that is just a, a disgrace. And the one thing we have really focused on in our work, uh, because uh, we see it, is this whole issue of cognitive bias, right? And of course, extraneous factors, race, mm -hmm. uh, figures into medical diagnosis. I'm sure you know a lot more than I do, but I know that uh, a lot of work has been done demonstrating that uh, even in terms of diagnosis, uh, you know, it's implicit bias that the healthcare providers don't even realize uh, is affecting their judgments mm -hmm. uh, uh, of their patients. And uh, we see this in particular in forensic pathology <clears throat> because one of the real problems we have in forensic pathology is uh, medical examiners are fine ordinarily in determining what is the cause of death. That's a bullet to the brain. That's a heart attack. You died of uh, uh, some particular cause. But they're also asked to opine about manner of death. And manner of death, uh, unfortunately, as you know, holistic experts, they start looking at things and they're dealing with what we would call domain-irrelevant information in formulating theories about what happened. And there's, uh, that's not really necessarily the expertise of the forensic pathologist. Um, and it's really more of a, frankly, a jury question about what really happened. And so we find, uh, and, and it's difficult, you know, we try to uh, uh, deal with these kinds of biases, uh, particularly implicit racial bias um, in all aspects of our work. You have aptly, I think I wanted to just use the word aptly right there, and talked about the importance of prevention. And again, another analogy, preventive medicine, preventive 
incarcerations, preventive accusations. What is being done to prevent the false accusations of people, criminals? Over the years, we've uh, uh, made a lot of progress in terms of some of our uh, legislative fixes. So eyewitness misidentification, uh, you know, in many ways is, you know, one of the biggest factors in the conviction of the innocent. And the reason for that, frankly, is that uh, uh, cognitively uh, making an identification after, a, you know, uh, some incident occurs is not easy. And truthfully, when you look at uh, footage, when you look at the records, archival records uh, from cases, and you also look at experimentation that uh, uh, psychologists are able to do in the lab, uh, uh, and I have my fingers up as, you know, quotation, they call it a lab, but it, there, there are a series of experiments that you can do to see what will affect uh, somebody actually making a right or wrong identification. Just think of this, a third of the time, uh, witnesses pick fillers, that is, people that are in a, either a photo array or a live lineup who you know are not the suspect. So if they're wrong, close to, I don't know, maybe 27, uh, between 27 and 30-something percent of the time, uh, that tells you how fraught with danger this is. And where I think we've made enormous progress is that we've been able to, in most many states, get what we call double-blind administration of either a photo array of the lineup, that is the person that's doing the identification procedure does not know the identity of the suspect. We get a warning uh, before the identification procedure comes uh, is done saying, uh, you know, listen, uh, we're going to show you some people uh, or some pictures. Uh, if you see anybody familiar with to you, you know, tell us. Uh, uh, but if not, don't worry, the investigation will continue. Just giving that warning, you know, decades ago, uh, it was shown by a scientist named Roy Malpass, increases uh, erroneous identifications by something like, you know, 20 to 25%. That's huge. And now we have a new reform uh, uh, that uh, Rebecca Brown, our policy director uh, at the Innocence Project, is really pushed for and succeeded in getting in a number of states, and that is that police officers should not be allowed to lie to suspects <laughs> when they're doing that interrogation because that does lead to false confessions. So uh, there, you know, we can do a lot better on the way that uh, people are interrogated to avoid false confessions, but certainly videotaping the process and prohibiting deception uh, particularly for juveniles, uh, is, has been extremely important. And anything that we can do to uh, uh, help crime labs uh, in many of these areas where uh, the, the forensic science is you know, not validated, unreliable, bite marks, uh, pattern matching uh, can be you know, improved enormously. And we've talked a little bit already about uh, uh, forensic pathology and manner of death and determinations. To sum up, you know, Barry's analysis right there, the 70% of, of DNA, people who have been exonerated through DNA, 
there's misidentification, which what he's talking about. You look like the person who raped me or the killer. Our minds are don't work that way. Um, and when there's cross-racial identification, it's even more powerful that it, the joke that all black people look alike to white people is true and the, the stats are there. So it, it it's present in every case. Um, and just to plug, you know, I don't think we properly made an introduction about the organization, but you know, we have a incredible litigation team that gets people out of prison. We're known for, you know, helping free over 200 people and starting this movement of using DNA uh, to, to prove innocence. But as, as Barry mentioned, we have an incredible policy team that's working to prevent wrongful conviction. And he talked about the reforms, pay our, our, our clients to make sure they're compensated because before the Innocence Project existed, um, the idea that you were innocent was a joke. And they've passed every post-conviction DNA law to get access to the courts, to get um, tested, to get our clients free. Um, and with that, our, once they got out of prison, our clients had no support because there was support for people who were formerly incarcerated, who were you know, admittedly guilty, but there were no resources for our clients. So they've built all of that you know, infrastructure, and I think are tackling this issue, not just from singularity of getting someone out, but this, you know, the systemic, the systems change. I think that's what, you know, when Barry says, punching above their weight, um, they really figured it out early and, and are doing a phenomenal job. Give the listeners some numbers about what your digital strategy impact has been at the Innocence Project. Yeah, so when I started in 2015, 2015, right before Making a Murder came out on Netflix, um, we had a few hundred thousand followers on social. Um, Today, we have millions. Uh, We were doing one million in funds. Uh, On a good year, we're doing 10 million in digital. Um, And we've led campaigns of innocent people facing execution that's driven, you know, thousands of calls to governors and, and legislators in Texas Tennessee, um, Missouri, you know, around the country. Uh, We have over a million advocates who have signed up to take action on our behalf so that when we have a call in any state, um, we have an army of people fighting for the Innocence Project. Um, And, you know, the, the last thing is just making, you know, making sure that we're recognized um, for excellence. Of course, we're the, you know, Barry and his team, they're the best in the game for defense, but that we are a, a force for digital. We've won about 10 awards for happiest moments um, in our other campaigns. So, you know, I feel good about what my team has contributed. And as Barry said, um, you know, we have a lot more work ahead and uh, but have the right momentum in a post George Floyd to capture people's energy, people's dollars. Um, and even a, in a post Trump era, you know, I see this liberal uh what do I call it? Um, I had a term for it, but pretty much people just want purpose in life. And I think Innocence Project gives, it's given me purpose um, for the last seven years and people want to help. Um, they're, they're, they want to help. They hear our clients' stories and, um, you know, we're, we're a gold mine of story, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, my biggest goal is I'll die happy when Barry and Peter uh, are awarded the freedom, the, the the Medal of Freedom from the from our country. I think that's my, you know, I'm like Valerie. How do we get this done? You know, apparently it's some process, but I think what they've done, um, and of course they they have a team behind them, but they started this um, is is really extraordinary, and I'm honored to um, be uh, on Barry's team um, and to uh, have had this privilege of 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 working for this organization. Well, that's very kind, but uh, 
I know, uh, Peter knows, you know, I think anybody in this movement knows, uh, you know, it doesn't take just a village. It takes an army to get an innocent person out of prison um, or to change any laws. And so, you know, uh, it's just gratifying to see um, all we're about to go to our April, you know, Innocence Network Conference in Phoenix. And we're going to see these people. It just gets bigger and bigger and more overwhelming, frankly, every year. And so it's uh, it's really a movement. And, you know, <laughs> we were just lucky to be there at the beginning. It's 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 not us. The Risa Wrap-Up. Well, high five thank you to Barry and to Alicia for joining me in conversation, taking the time to speak about the Innocence Project and its work, as well as its history. I really love this concept of digital strategy and being a digital director and seeing the exponential growth that Alicia was able to direct for the Innocence Project. Because what this has done is this has communicated in a way that it's getting on many people's radar, it's getting across their Instagram and in their TikTok and on their Twitter. This is important work. This is the real deal work. Trying to free people that are innocent. Trying to help right the wrongs of the U.S. justice system. And overall, to be on the right side of history. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. Our production team includes Stacey Gitlin, Dr. Giuliano Deporto, and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, to be continued.